Good morning, Crosspoint, and thank you again so much for joining us online. So if you will, please turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 29, as we continue following Jesus together through the Gospel of Mark. Now, one of the central themes in Mark's Gospel is, is faith. That you may remember that Mark's account is from the eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter and what he saw and heard as he followed Jesus. And now Mark is writing to an audience in Rome. He's encouraging believers who are enduring persecution that's beginning to rise, but he's also calling for, for Romans to place their faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God, as the promised Messiah, and, and he's explaining why they should trust in him. He's helping us see how Jesus has authenticated his authority and his identity by, by showing his power over the spiritual world and the physical world. We've seen Jesus heal people from from leprosy, from being paralyzed. Last week we saw how he healed a woman who had an issue of bleeding for, for 12 years, how he raised a, a little girl to life. We've seen his power over the spiritual world as he's healed countless people from unclean spirits, even a man who had a legion of demons living inside of him, thousands of evil spirits tormenting this man. And with the power of his word, Jesus cast them out. We've seen his identity authenticated over and over. And then we've seen how different groups have responded to Jesus, that some have responded with faith. When Jesus says, come, follow me, they left behind everything and they came and they followed Jesus. Others, though, that they hear him and they see him and they, they reject him. They're, they're annoyed by him. Who is this that he would say these things? And not only do they reject him, but they also plan for how to kill him. And it's to this end, in this moment with this question, that today's passage presents us with both stumbling blocks to faith and supports for our faith. That there are things that, that, that can grow, that, that on the journey and in the race of faith creep up out of the ground that can trip us up, that become stumbling blocks along the journey, can lead to unbelief and death. Or we're also going to see things that they don't trip us up, but they lift us up above the hazards to be able to trust in Jesus, to follow him together. And so it's with this in mind that, that, that it causes us to ask the question, will you place your faith in Jesus and follow him? This is the question that is before us throughout the Gospel of Mark. The whole point of even how we're going to see how it's structured and how it's going to come to an end leaves it for us, the reader, to say, how then will we respond? This is who Jesus is. This is how others have responded. Now, how will you respond? And so I want us to see this morning, what are the stumbling blocks that we need to avoid? And what are the supports that Christ has given us? to help us as we follow Jesus together. And so if you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We're going to look at the first six verses here. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 29, but let's begin when Jesus goes back to his hometown. 
because it says he, being Jesus, went away from there. He's currently in Capernaum. This is about 20 miles south of where Jesus' hometown is, which is Nazareth. And so Jesus came to his hometown and with his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, is a parallel passage here and tells us how Jesus stood up and he began to preach from Isaiah 61. And, and he says, today, in your hearing, these verses have been fulfilled. And it says that, that as he began to teach them in the synagogue, many who heard him, they're astonished. They're completely astonished. This literally means like their mind is blown. They're hearing the teachings of Jesus and they're like, this is incredible. Look at what he's saying. Look at what he has done, who he is. And so there's this initial astonishment, but it doesn't last. In many ways, if we think back to, to the four soils and, and the farmer who was casting the seed, in many ways, it's as though the seed of the truth was cast onto the, the pavement. It has fallen. There's an initial astonishment, but it is quickly taken away. Because look at what happens, the questions then th that they begin to ask that leads ultimately to offense and rejection. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom that was given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And, and these are all valid questions that they're exploring, their curiosity. But curiosity can lead to faith or curiosity can lead to rejection. And what we see here is where that curiosity leads to rejection because listen to the nature of their questions now. In verse three, is this not, see now it's not even a question, it's an accusation. Is this not the, the carpenter? Isn't this man just a, a blue collar worker? Like he doesn't have a degree hanging on his wall. He doesn't have any formal education. He's not an official rabbi. Who is this man that we should be astonished by his teaching? There's nothing there. He's just a, a common man, no different than, than you and I. But then it even goes deeper. It's as if that knife being stabbed in his back and twisted. Is he, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Here's the thing. In, in first century, it would have been common to say the son of Joseph. And in Luke chapter 4, in the parallel passage, it does use that phrase. But it seems as though some were using a derogatory term by saying son of Mary. See, because acknowledging not the son of Joseph, of who is his father, he's basically saying Mary, his mother, was a whore. And Jesus is her illegitimate child. Why should we listen to him? This is a small town. Uh, the, the rumors have spread. The stories have been known. And now in accusation, in prejudice, in self-righteousness, they're stumbling over what this means. Uh, he's just a carpenter. He's just a, a blue collar worker. He's a Jew. He's a, he's a man. He's a, a Middle Easterner. He's olive-skinned. Why should we listen to Jesus? His mom got pregnant out of wedlock. He doesn't even know who his daddy is. Only white people follow Jesus. That's just an American cultural thing. 
The, the excuses and condemnations and accusations can go on and on, where it's no longer curiosity, but it's accusations that harden one's heart to responding in faith, and it becomes a stumbling block. This is when it says, is this not? And they took offense at him. That word offense literally means a stumbling block. It is something that as they are moving forward in curiosity, now they have tripped over and have fallen into unbelief. This is what is happening here. And then in verse 5, there's this curious statement that Jesus could no longer do mighty works there because of their lack of faith, except that he laid his hands on a few people and and healed them. Now, we have to be careful here. Because we can say that Jesus couldn't do miracles there. Does that mean that Jesus is given power by our faith? That Jesus' power is somehow dependent on the amount of faith or if we have faith? But that would be utter foolishness to say such a thing. If God, because he is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful, if that is not dependent solely upon his will... If it's dependent on us, then he's not all-powerful, right? Jesus' ability to heal is not empowered or diminished by our faith. In the same way that if you think, if you're sick, right, and and, and you're getting more and more sick, and and people are like, you should go to the doctor. They're going to be able to give you something and be able to help them. But you're like, the doctors can't help me. I don't believe that they're going to be able to help me. And so you get sicker and sicker. Has your lack of confidence caused that doctor to have amnesia? Have they forgotten all of their training, all of their experience, all of their knowledge because you don't believe in them? Because you don't believe they're able to help, that somehow you have taken from them anything? No. It has simply placed you outside the sphere and purpose of why they're there. In the same way, Jesus is not, his power is not dependent upon our faith. But when we don't have faith, it put them outside the purposes that God had. God remains all-powerful. He remains able to heal. And even on a bad day, even with their lack of faith, he laid his hands and still healed many. But it was limited because they had placed themselves outside the purposes of God. And so there's an application here I want us to consider. Because what had happened in Nazareth, in his hometown, and even Jesus says, like a prophet, is he has honor everywhere else until he comes home. And it's like, I knew you. I saw you when you were a child. But now you're saying these great things, and I don't know if I can listen to you. They had become so familiar with Jesus, seeing him grow up, knowing his family, that they rejected him. And and you and I, we don't have that same issue. It's not like we've been with Jesus' family, that we've seen his brothers and sisters, that we know Mary, that we watch Jesus grow. We are not in the same situation. And yet, we can fall and stumble in the same ways. Have you become so familiar with Jesus that you are minimizing who he is? And, and here's what I mean by that. Maybe you've You've grown up in church. You've heard these great, marvelous truths, but they're commonplace. Like sometimes I think the words that we use in church 
are meant to be deep waters that we swim in, deeper than, than, than the depths of the ocean itself. Words like redemption, restoration, resurrection, the gospel, sanctification, mercy, grace. They're words that we sing about, we talk about, but after a while, they're no longer treated like depths that we swim in, but we treat them like a mud puddle that a child jumps in, gets easily distracted, and moves on to play with something else. Are you minimizing who Jesus is because you're just familiar? Because you've heard it. Because you've jumped in the mud puddle, but you haven't swum in the depth, the depths. Don't allow your heart to become so familiar that you minimize what is holy and glorious and sacred. Ask that God would help your hearts uh, to marvel, to rejoice, to mine the depths of who He is. Because then we see in this next passage what faithful obedience looks like. When we follow Jesus, things that he has given us that support, that lift up above these stumbling blocks. Because the disciples have just seen it. They've seen Jesus go back to his hometown and be rejected there. And now Jesus is going to send them out. Two by two, he's going to send them out. They've just seen Jesus himself be rejected. And I wonder what went through their minds. Like it's one thing to follow Jesus, right? And to, and to watch him do these miracles to, to teach. But then he's like, okay, now, now you go out and you teach and you heal. And they're like, I'm a fisherman. Like, who am I to, to go out? And yet this is what faith is going to look like. And so I want us to consider, because in verse 7 up through verse 13, it says, Jesus called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the clean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to, to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. See, here's what I want us to see of what it means to follow Jesus in faith. The positive side of what it means to follow him. And the first thing is, is the process. When Jesus called people to himself, do you remember what he said? He says, come, follow me to be with him. That the first thing in faith that we are invited into is to be with Jesus, to watch him, to listen to his teachings, to, that they heard him teach, that they heard explanations of his teaching. They watched him heal people. They were with Jesus throughout all of this before they were ever charged with modeling and walking in the same thing. They were sent out two by two. 
Think of the companionship and the support on the journey, on the walk, in the midst of the discouragement. When you begin to, to just fall low into discouragement, but someone is there to lift you up and say, let's keep going. Let's keep walking in obedience. Jesus didn't send them out in isolation. He sent them out together. That there was a companionship, a partnership in the gospel there. And then he delegated his authority. In verse 7, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. See, there's a difference here between power and authority that's important to understand. And one of the things that helped me actually understand this was my professor in college, I think it was in political science, it was this short little lady, and she was talking about power and authority. And as she's talking about this, one of the other students comes in who's kind of my size, well over six feet tall, 200 plus pounds, and he's wearing a baseball cap. And she said, watch this. And she stands up to this student and she's looking up at him and he's looking down at her and having no idea what's going on. And she says to him, take off your hat. And immediately the guy takes off his hat and he's holding it and he's looking down and he's just like, like well, what's happening? And then she made this point, was it by power or authority that he removed that hat? And the statement was obvious, it wasn't by power. This little woman standing before this massive man, she didn't physically force him to take that hat off. She wouldn't have had the power, but she did have the authority as our professor. And he immediately responded, See, in this case, what we see is that Jesus is all-powerful. He is all-powerful over all the world, but he's also <clears throat> sovereign. And in his sovereignty, that means that he has all authority also. So when the disciples are sent out, they're sent out as a representative of Christ's power with his authority. They weren't given power to say, like, it's in the name of Peter, or in the name of, of my name, in the name of Steve, be healed. No, in the name of Jesus, be healed, because he is all-powerful. But they were given authority to represent Jesus. This is what they were being sent out in, with the authority of Jesus. God is both all-powerful and sovereign. But this is true of us too, right? If we think of Acts 1.8, that we have been given power through the Holy Spirit to go out in Jesus' authority, right? And the call as part of what it means to walk by faith is to trust in God's ongoing provision. This is what we see here with the disciples when it's like, hey, don't take anything. Don't take food. Don't take money. Don't take extra clothes, just go and trust God to provide. Go in peace. There was a defensiveness. There was a, a vulnerability. But ultimately, they were called to trust God for both their provision, but also to trust God with the results, that they were to go out and preach and to heal. But that didn't guarantee that people were going to listen. And he says, look, if people don't listen, shake the dust from your feet. This was a judgment on the people like I have faithfully proclaimed. But if, if you don't listen, then it was a judgment to say, the dust is off my feet, I'm moving on. But if they offer you a place to stay, stay there and preach and minister. They were trusting God with the results. They walked in obedience. 
But they didn't just walk in obedience depending on the results. They walked in obedience trusting God for the results. And I think that this has an important application for us this morning. Like, are you trusting in God's provision? In God's provision, namely of his his power, his presence, and his people. See, here's what I mean by that. Are you trusting God's power in your life, that it's in his authority, it's through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit within you as a follower of Christ that you're seeking to, to follow? Or are you trying to do it in your own energy? Figure things out yourself, listen to your own thoughts and heart. Or are you independence being with Jesus? Trusting in the provision of his power and his presence. When he says, lo, I will be with you always. As we go out, Jesus has promised us that he would be with us. Are we trusting and enduring with his presence and with his people? Two by two they were sent out. Or are you trying to go it alone? I think this there's a real call here in community and to partner together in the gospel. To say that when I go alone, I'm going to get discouraged. I'm going to get worn down. I'm going to lose sight. But together with others, we can encourage one another. I can be an encouragement to others and they can be an encouragement to me. That when we disengage from community, not only are you losing out, but others are losing out from the lack of your voice and encouragement in their life. We need one another in this journey of faith. This is how God has intended it to be as the body of Christ. That in the same way that he sent them out together, we are being called to follow Jesus together, not alone. But then the passage continues here in verse 14 through the end of 29 with King Herod. He begins to hear of everything that that Jesus is is doing, but there's a fear that's creeping up in his heart because there was something that he feels guilty about that he has done. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're just afraid of being caught. You know that you have done something wrong and are they going to find out? What will they think? And there's this underlying fear that changes how you relate to everyone. But rather than allowing that sense of fear and guilt to lead to conviction and repentance, it led to a hardening of his heart. And so what we're going to see is that people were speculating, who is this Jesus? How is he doing these things? And some were like, maybe it's Elijah, but some, and this is where King Herod's heart got latched onto, said, this is John the Baptist having coming back from the dead. And this is what caused fear in King Herod's heart. Because he's like, oh no, because he had killed John the Baptist. Now it's at this point that Mark is going to go into a flashback. He's going to tell us how it came about for King Herod to kill and to murder John the Baptist and why he has fear now and how he then responds to it. But I have to warn you, this is a a vivid description of vulgar actions, right? This, This may seem more fitting for a tabloid 
that you would see in a grocery store aisle than it does for the Bible. And the following verses are going to take us into the dark depravity of a man whose conscience is seared by fear and by pride that will lead him into an unbelief and rejection. This is yet another stumbling block to faith. That in the race of following after Jesus, rather than being lifted up and supported by these things that God has given us, there is a rejection. And this is what is true of King Herod. Because see, his dad was Herod the Great, a man who wanted to be emperor of Israel, right? King of the Jews. But then he heard that a child had been born who might have a rightful claim to this title. And in fear... His dad had every child two years and younger murdered just to ensure this child could not undermine his plans. Herod the Great wanted so much to be in power that he killed his two oldest sons because he feared that they wanted his throne prematurely. Historians tell us how Caesar Augustus even is recorded as saying that he would rather be a pig on the farm of Herod the Great than to be one of his sons, because he would be treated better as a pig. This is who King Herod's dad was, but when his dad passed away, his wealth and his land and his rule went to his wicked sons, one of whom is Herod Antipas, referred to here in verse 14 as King Herod. And, and, And King Herod was not the ruler that his dad was. And so to make up for that, he would throw these lavish, wild, debaucherous parties to win the favor of others. He was a man ruled by his own lust, by his own pride, by his own need for approval because he had to keep the Galileans in check that they liked him because he wanted the favor of the Romans. And so he was constantly a a politician without a backbone, just looking for the approval of others to get more of what he wanted to build himself up. And so he was constantly in his own pride and demand for rule and power, seeking the approval of others. But lust is what ruled his heart to the point where he lusted after his brother's wife. His brother was was Philip. His wife was Herodias. And King Herod, no longer wanted his own wife, so exiled her far away and then had an affair with his brother's wife and then took her as his own wife. John the Baptist, aware of this, that is playing out in the tabloids of the time, calls sin what is sin. He's not trying to make a political statement. He's not seeking people's approval. He says what this person has done is against what God says is right. And he says what he has done is wrong. It is wrong for King Herod to take the wife of his brother. That's not right. And Herodias, the Philip's wife, whom King Herod took as his own, was furious. She didn't want to be called out for this. She wanted John the Baptist dead. But Herod can't do that because if he kills John the Baptist, then the Galileans are going to be upset with him. And then that's going to cause unrest, which is going to make Rome upset. And so he's trying to appease them while also trying to make his wife happy. So to find a middle ground, he imprisons John the Baptist for two years. 
throws him in prison. But during that time, it seems as if Herod went to talk with him, was fascinated by him, didn't want to, to kill him because he saw him as a good and righteous man. And, and he was curious when he would talk with him and fascinated by what he heard. But many scholars think that part of that was in his own depravity, being able to talk with a righteous man made himself feel better. Let's talk about the right thing. Let's consider the right thing. But there is a big, big difference between knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. We can talk about what it looks like to be righteous and to follow God all we want, but if we're not walking in it, then, then what does it even mean? And, and what happened, it seems, in Herod's life is that he could talk about it, but he was walking in wickedness, and his heart and conscience became more and more callous, leading him into a deeper and deeper unbelief, until the point of yet another wild party. These parties were typically for men only. Think of the most depraved, godless bachelor party. It was only men. Women were servers and entertainers, dancers. These dancers at the time were just above the everyday prostitute and below a concubine. In today's culture, think exotic dancer. And so Herodias, once King Herod and, and his other friends are well lubricated with alcohol, sends out her daughter, Salome, to exotic dance for her uncle and stepdad. See, Salome was Herodias' daughter from Philip, so that would have been King Herod's niece, and now that he was married to Herodias, his stepdaughter. And so Herodias sends out her daughter to dance for the king, and he's well pleased with lustful intent. And he makes the rash offer for anything you want, up to half my kingdom. Now Salome knows that her mom sent her out there for a purpose, that there was an, an end and a desire in this. So she goes back to her mom and she's like, what do you want me to ask for? And Herodias finally gets her wish. She has waited and waited. I want the head of John the Baptist. Now, Salome is not innocent in all of this because she goes back out and she adds a few things. She's like, right now, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And it says that King Herod was greatly grieved by this, that he didn't want to kill, but it wasn't just because he thought it was wrong. He knew that it would upset the Galileans, and then this was going to cause unrest, and then the Romans were going to be upset with him, and that this was going to upset everything. But in his pride, he's like, I made this offer. I can't take it back now, right? Like I, I said I was going to do this. What are all these people going to think about me if I change my mind? What are these people going to think about me if I repent and turn from what I said? And so Pride prevented Herod from doing what is right. He was sorry he made such a rash offer, but his sorrow did not lead to repentance. It did not lead to conviction. He can't show weakness. He can't be wrong. He can't change his mind. What will the other people think? And so in the pursuit of their approval, 
in the pride of his own identity, he had John the Baptist beheaded. And now we see the guilt in his heart. I killed John the Baptist, whom I beheaded. Maybe he's come back to take vengeance. And I think that there's a lesson here for us. Is the opinion of others holding you back from following Jesus? Now think about this. Is the opinion of others seeking their approval, your own pride, your own need of how others see you, how they think about you, impacting your willingness to follow Jesus? Is your conscience slowly being seared because you know the right thing to do, but you're afraid of what others might say, how hard it is? And so little by little, you're saying no, no, no. And what happens is our hearts become more and more and more calloused with each time that we walk in disobedience, knowing the right thing, thinking ourselves wise and righteous because we can say the right things and yet walk in disobedience obedience, and wickedness. This is what happened to King Herod. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, in in chapter 23, verses 8 through 11, it tells us how King Herod finally stood before Jesus. Actually, Jesus was standing before him. And it says that King Herod was glad. He was glad to finally be standing with Jesus in his presence, for he had long desired it. It said he wanted to, to be able to see Jesus because he had heard about him. And King Herod was just hoping that Jesus would would do a miracle. Do a magic trick, Jesus. Let me see something fun. Be my court jester for the day, Jesus. This is going to be awesome. And so he pleads with them. Tell me about yourself. Let me see something. I heard you can heal people. Show me what you can do, Jesus. Meanwhile, the the scribes and the chief priests, they stood by and they're they're accusing Jesus and, and they're saying how horrible he is. King Herod, his heart has become so hard, he merely wants to see a magic trick. Until King Herod and the soldiers, it said, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Herod, who once was curious to talk with John the Baptist, stood in mockery of Jesus whom his dad had tried to kill, dressed him up in a robe and a crown of thorns and sent him off to Pilate to be crucified. Jesus never said a word. Silent. And all the mockery and all the accusations. Herod's heart has become so hard that Jesus stood in silence. Don't allow your heart to become so hard, so callous to the promptings of the Holy Spirit that you can no longer hear the voice of God. Will you place your faith and trust in Jesus? Will you follow him? Will you be with him? Think about what this means, what this is being invited into. To trust in Jesus, to walk with him, to trust in his presence, in his power in your life. Will you look and walk with other people following Jesus together? Or will you be like the hometown people in Nazareth? Familiar, 
and indifferent. Where the common aspects of language has just become commonplace and indifferent. Your heart sits there cold to the warm realities of God's glory. If you find your heart growing cold, if you find your heart and mind indifferent to these deep, beautiful truths, plead with God to cultivate and fan the flame in your heart. Do not excuse it, but let it lead you into a deeper trust. Curiosity in these difficulties can lead us into a deeper relationship with God, or it can cause our hearts to become calloused to Him. Beware of your own heart. Beware of a heart that in pride and desire for approval of others would cause you to walk in disobedience. Be more concerned with who God is and what He thinks of you than what others think of you. Let us place our hope and our faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this time this morning together to surrender ourselves before your word. Lord, I pray that the stumbling blocks that are highlighted in this passage, that you would illuminate our path as we follow you. That if there are these areas that are a potential danger in our own journey of faith, becoming too familiar, uh, pride, approval, Lord. Would you highlight where those are at in our path so that we do not stumble over them? Lord, would you lift us up in the same way that you called out the, the disciples here to go out two by two? Lord, that you would call us out together to walk with one another in obedience to your teaching, Lord in your authority and in your power for the sake of your name, Lord. Help us to trust in your provision, to trust you for the results of it all. Lord, be glorified in us and through us together as a church family. Lord, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name.